Eurovision. I never watched it. And then I saw that movie. This is sad. Like, I should have known about Eurovision because it's amazing. But I saw that movie with Will Ferrell. Yes. (laughs) It was terrible. Terribly good. No, it's um... (laughs) a... It was awesome. And I was watching it and I was like, this can't be a real thing. Because I had never heard of Eurovision before. I, I didn't either. know. I didn't mm-hmm. know about this. And I was like, this can't be a real thing. And so then Sean and I went down like a YouTube rabbit hole for like three hours looking up all the videos from the past winners. Oh. And it's amazing. Really? So, like American then, Idol? Kind no. of. Okay. No, girl, no. I'm talking elaborate costumes like elaborate lighting and like laser light show and technology and like visual effects live that's happening live and then dancers everyone's got dancers (laughs) unless you're like doing a ballad if you're doing a ballad you don't necessarily have or if you're very cool like you're from belgium then you're just like singing like a very actually good song but a lot of the songs are very it's just it's a spec it's a visual feast it's oh. an auditory feast. It's mm-hmm. a, it's like a celebration of everything that's like good about these countries. Oh, and nice. it's very like pro, like let's all be, we're all the same person. And we're like all, it's like unity. And like the chick from Russia did one and she was like, you be who you want to be. And like, don't you tell anybody how you need to act as a woman. It was really good. It's so good. I don't know about this, but now it, I know about this. Okay, so this is my gift to you. Thank you. When we're done here, you're going to you. get on YouTube and mm-hmm. you're just going to put in like Eurovision winner mm-hmm. 2019. Sounds like you 20- want me to cry. I watch the voice It'll and make I cry. You cry. I always cry. You watch the voice and you cry? Yes, because especially when they're getting trying to get on the show. You know, when they have to wait for somebody oh. to turn. And like, this is their moment, right? Oh, yeah. They've worked their whole life singing, practicing, mm-hmm. most of them at least. I mean, there's some people who I never sang in front of anybody before, but most of them have practiced for so long and you just yeah. you can feel it. Ooh, I always cry. Yeah. Do, do they not turn sometimes? Sometimes yeah. they don't turn. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes yeah. they and don't. And sometimes they're even good. It's, you can't mm-hmm. even, yeah, I don't know why they, why they don't turn. That's not what they want on their team or their team already has too much of that or whatever. Oh, it's brutal. I have yeah. to stop watching at a certain point just because well, I think it's a racist show because nobody, mm. only the white people seem to win. And the country white people, like country singers lately. Mm. Country music, you're not speaking my language with country music. I, hear I don't mind it, but I just don't think it should always win. Yeah, no, it's too easy. Yeah. It's too easy to Is sing. It, unless I, you're Dolly like Parton. Easy. Oh, unless you're Dolly okay. Parton. Unless mm-hmm. you're Dolly Parton. Exactly. But the mm-hmm. new stuff is the new stuff. Yeah. I'm elderly. I'm a I'm a geriatric millennial. Okay, I found oh, I found this out the other day. So, anyway, right. thank you, <laughs> thank you. Do you get a senior discount? Oh. Mm, I should try. I should yeah. try. Good luck. Good luck. At like, you get like if you open a TikTok or something, you oh get a gosh. discount. Is TikTok cost money? Ah, we need to stop. So. Okay, I don't think so either. That's also an old. I can't go down that rabbit hole. Mm, I can't either. I think about it, and I'm like little snippets of the show on tiktok and then i'm like how does that work it's a visual medium okay never mind then whatever welcome to breast cancer is boring a podcast about breast cancer with jocelyn and lauren 
whether you have breast cancer or any other kind of cancer, or you're just a weirdo who's super <laughs> cancer curious, welcome. We hope you enjoy. Because breast cancer is boring, but we and you mm-hmm. are interesting. I love it. Announcements. Today we are celebrating 200. That's 200 followers on Instagram. 200. The tens of tens of people turned into 200. Hundred and hundred of people following us on Instagram. I know it's amazing. Just the beginning. It's just the beginning. People ask, how did you do it? You know, Jocelyn, how do you you and Lauren do it? Mm -mm. And so fast. You've only been on there for like years. So, (laughs) you know, all I'm going to say is I just want to thank God and that's it. Okay. Um, Second announcement. It's still a pandemic. I know, I know. Like we've been talking about this for a while. So we're going to make it quick. People 16 and up can now get the shot. I think they're rolling 12. that out. 12 now. 12 and up. Update my notes. Mm-hmm. 12 and up can get the shot or shots, yep. Yep. depending. They're um, having, so they're having a, lots of um, the school districts are actually having events. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I know. I'm Ooh, so I excited. I want to get in there and volunteer. I'm totally going to get my kid in. Get that. Get that kid a shot. I He's can't gonna wait. need it. He's I'm had so his sex excited. ed. Get him all the other shots too, man. Yeah. You got the oh. Gardasil because he's learning yeah. about sex, which we, as we, we know, did that. once you learn about sex, you have it all the time. So they're very connected, those two things. So <laughs> he's just going to turn into a horn dog. So you better oh, get no. him vaccinated. Get his, get him his shots. Mm-hmm. Get him dewormed. Very important before he gets out there and impregnates the neighborhood. Hey, um, oh, don't know, Jocelyn. <laughs> No, I can't. It's not possible. This is why you keep him in his kennel. Um, so you and your kids can get the shot. So maybe do that. Yes, please. So and also exciting. new CDC guidelines say that if you're vaccinated, you can go without a mask. But maybe please don't lie about being vaccinated, please. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still wearing a mask because I work in a hospital. I know you probably are too. Yep. Um, also, it is really hard to tell if someone is immunocompromised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because, like, I look healthy as hell, you know, mm-hmm. this hair. This is not the hair of an immunocompromised woman, but it is. So, and I am. So if you're not vaccinated, you, you don't know who you're approaching who's, like, no. at risk. Vulnerable. Yeah, it would be, like, really cool of you to wear a mask. All right, introductions. Today we have a very special guest. This is where I'm going to introduce you and talk about you like you're not here already, but you are. But, like, let me do it because it's so fun. Okay, we have a very special guest. He's an American author, speaker, storyteller, according to his website, A Court Jester. Which mm-hmm. I didn't believe until I watched a video on your website, and now I do believe. Oh, um, whose upcoming memoir entitled "Cut Off" has been described by people who are smart enough to know as poetic, <laughs> surprising, wry, thoughtful. It's Ira Feinstein. Hi. Hey, Thank you. welcome. Thank you. We're Thank glad you. you're here. It's exciting to be here. Yeah, uh, this is it's great. an exciting place. It's pretty cool. Um, why don't you tell us just uh, very quickly, uh, generally about yourself and what it is you are doing on a breast cancer podcast? Sure. So I am a trans man, 
and I did not transition until I was 38. So most of my life I spent living as a woman. My mother died of breast cancer when I was 11. Uh, when she died, her mother had already died of breast cancer before her. And on my dad's side, had also, there had also been cancer, which at the time I thought was breast cancer. My mom died younger than her mother. My mom was 43 and her mother was 48. And I knew all of these things and that sort of on the cusp of puberty, you know, that awareness that you have of the world around you and the connections you're making, even if they're not always correct, they feel so right. Mm -hmm. And um, she died in the summer when I needed my first bra. Like by the time I got my first bra, I was already a B cup. So I spent the summer like going to visit my mom in the hospital and then trying to figure out if I should ask her to get me my first bra or the woman who was going to become my mom, who was her best friend. And then luckily, luckily, I didn't have to make the decision because my mother died. And the next day, my godmother said, we're going to the mall to get bras, which is one of the best gifts ever anybody could ever give me because I did not have to ask. And I knew I needed one. And it was so embarrassing because all the other girls were wearing one. But okay. that summer, I was sad, obviously. And it was also the summer, it was 1989, so it was the summer of the human genome had been mapped. And on the cover of all the papers, they were talking about the race to find the breast cancer mutation. You know, like this was, this was the big thing. And I was just oh said, my in my little 11-year-old brain, I was like, okay, well, obviously there's a mutation. I obviously have it. And I need to get my breast cut off in order to not get cancer and die like my mom. And I told my godmother that that summer. And so it's kind of the story of my story is, you know, like, what is it like to like grow up in a body that you're already so scared of? The fact that I am a trans man was obviously complicated that, but it wasn't, it complicated that on a whole other level because I couldn't even trust if my feelings about my gender identity were true or if mm. they were a result of just internalized metrophobia, which would be very logical because who wouldn't be scared of becoming their mother when that's what you see your generation of women doing and your family is oh. just succumbing to cancer. Oh my so. gosh. I have you crazy goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You predicted <sighs> your own genetic mutation. Oh yeah. At 11. I believe it. No, yeah. I totally yeah. believe it. Because, you know, it's that, like, inner, like, gut feeling that mm. you have. Like, you, mm. especially if you know something is wrong. I've had it. Jocelyn, mm. you yeah. had it. Although you tried to deny it. <laughs> oh, I sure did. Yeah, really, really hard. The denial um, is strong with this one. <laughs> but, yes. you know, I... I truly believe in that because only one person can really, really know. Like it's, it's almost like another sense that you have. Like yep. it, you just know. And mm. I, I truly believe in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need a sweater. <laughs> oh no, God. I'm about to, I'm getting a hot flash. So like uh -oh. we're having, I think the same reaction, but mm -hmm. on two ends of the spectrum. Different physiological experience. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Wow. 
You're also a member of like this very elite club, which is people who have been through an almost unspeakable trauma who are able to actually speak about it and at times be very funny. <laughs> yeah, I guess. You know would, what I mean? Yeah. That is not accessible to everyone, I don't think. Mm-mm. Yeah. That is like a different, that's a different part of the brain. Well, it's certain. Yeah. It's certainly not pervasive in like established what I think you referred to as cancer culture, mm-hmm. like the the Ivers, the Ivers, mm-hmm. yeah, all the Ivers. Mm-hmm. Um, Ira, uh, before we go any further, I do want to um tell you my condolences about your mom and your grandma, even Thank though you. it was. A long time ago, I think that um, you're very brave to move forward and, you know, recognize those things that are so important. And we're so happy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank God for Lauren. You're such a better person than I am. I'm like, moving on. The next thing on our notes is. And she's like, yeah, let's recognize this trauma, please. (laughs) Take a moment. Oh, thank God. Ugh. I just go with my gut, Jocelyn. Okay. I know. And your gut, I'm just saying your gut is a lot healthier than mine. More microbes. It's like pure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have like the good bacteria. Mm-hmm. They're very important. And I have mostly the bad bacteria. <laughs> but you, you named it, Ira. You were talking, when we were talking back and forth, mm-hmm. you were, you ca- named it cancer culture. And that got me thinking, cause we, we talk on here about like, the pink washing of breast cancer in right. particular and and all of that and like the archetypal uh woman for breast cancer the susan g Komen like mm-hmm. poster woman oh, is yeah. like this 40s something bald mm-hmm. woman with a bold lip and a you know pack and double d's mm-hmm. and and that it, it's it's not that just the very like existence of an archetype by default, leaves people out, even if that wasn't the intention. And so it's important to, like, bring forward people who don't fit, people who choose not to have breast reconstruction, um, people who never had, who who chose to have prophylactic mastectomies. Mm -hmm. And that, that, like, pre-viver stuff, to use the language, is really downplayed. Yeah. Although, for the record, like I did have double lot. Ds, just so you know. They you didn't big. have double Ds? I did have double Ds. They were big. I thought you did. Yeah. Yes, they were large. There is they this. They were large. Yeah. That, there are some essays on your website, and yeah. like I recommend everyone go and read them because they're so like honest and raw and poetic and funny, and I'm not sure how you're doing all those things at the same time, um, but it's just... It's kind of cool to hear someone talk about their own body. I don't know, in such like a loving, accepting way, even with like changes. I don't know. It just it's different. It it like comes across so different than what I usually hear people talk mm-hmm. about their bodies like, mm-hmm. which is often kind of, you know, disparaging or self-effacing kind of, you know, joking, but not joking. Right. Because we feel insecure about so many things. But okay, so you're a BRCA positive. Yep. 
what is labeled in the nomenclature of breast cancer as a previvor. Mm-hmm. And you said something that actually had not occurred to me because I'm in my own little bubble of like how it happened to me. I went through my life and I think most young women, we find something in either in a screening or we find it on ourselves and we have to convince other people that it's serious mm-hmm. oftentimes. But that fear, I have never feared getting cancer in my life until I got it. I was yeah. an oncology nurse. I gave chemo to other people. That that was like my insurance plan against ever getting it. So it was yeah. like, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. Boom, I have cancer, I could die. Whereas with you and, and others who are BRCA positive, that is not the experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm going to die if I don't do something about this. Like from the age of... Yeah, from the age, I mean, I think it was their underlying from the age of 11 on, but I didn't get, the testing didn't start until, I think it was 97, and I got tested the next year. So I got tested pretty much as soon as I could, and I was Mm -hmm. a few months shy of 21, and they did not want to test me, because what 20-year-old can deal with this information, really? Which is... Mm. That's honest question. I mean, that's a legitimate question. Who can honestly deal with this information? Really? Mm-hmm. Whether you're, you know, 50, 60, living in this like no, like no person's land of this thing is maybe probably is coming for me. And how do I navigate dealing with this thing that maybe is probably but not here yet coming? It makes mm. it's challenging. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, um, but my uh, godmother, she was there with me. She went with me to the testing. She knew they didn't want, they, she knew. I didn't want her to go. I was like, I can't do this myself. But she <laughs> knew that she needed to be there. And I remember they took me out of the room and they were just in the room. It was a genetic counselor and then it was Connie is her name. And it was an oncologist. And they asked her, how do you think, you know, she can deal with this information? And, and Connie said that I couldn't move on with my life until I knew, which was yeah. probably one of the most accurate and honest things she could have said. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. You had such a great advocate for you. I did. Yep. I did. Nice. So you got tested and it was got tested. Positive. And they were the they were surprised because they said based on what they knew of my history, I would have an eight to eleven percent chance of having a mutation. But I when they told me I smiled. I smiled. They thought I was going to, they were waiting for something. And I just, I was like, Mm. I knew I was right. No, Mm -hmm. you didn't believe me. And I was right. Right. You know, I felt very vindicated, but honestly, I was a little obsessed. I was obsessed. And I think if they had said you're negative, I would have said, you haven't found the mutation that I have yet. Like that's how strong I was in my belief that I had a mutation, you know, it it bordered on crazy. It consumed, it yeah. honestly consumed my life for about a decade. Mm. Like I was, wow. it was like, I did all crazy research about cancer prevention and from a lay I can person's see why terms. though. Right. I, I get it. The test result was just a test result. Right. You know, you already knew the answer. Yeah. You definitely already knew the answer. It was just uh, somebody else on the outside validating what you already knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had that same experience. I'm not 
BRCA positive, but I definitely had the same experience where a doctor was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's I mean, I'm 99 percent sure that you're fine. You're fine. Your mammogram was clear. Your breast ultrasound was clear. It's fine. You're fine. Like, mm-hmm. don't overreact. Uh-uh. But, um, you know, I didn't smile when I got my result, but I was very sure that mm-hmm. I was, it, you know, it, it's a validating feeling for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I had to be told to take it, like, to absorb it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, I went, did, like... It wasn't until that radiologist was looking at me and he paused in whatever he was saying because I couldn't hear anything. And he was like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just sitting there and I, he paused and I was like, so are we done? Or like, do you need, like, do you? And he's like, mm. he's like, you know, I, mm. and he had to like actually say the word cancer. And then I was like, well, like on a spectrum of like, this is nothing to like, we're sure this is you know, the thing, like, uh-huh. where are we? And he was like, yeah, we're, this is like definite, this is probably, I'm almost sure, like, you have cancer. Like, it, they had to convince me because <laughs> I was so, nothing bad was ever going to happen to me, guys. I'm telling you, I've been through a journey mentally, but, uh, which is like, so, I think why it didn't occur to me that someone who was BRCA positive would be living with this sense of like anxiety and dread oh, yeah. about dying, which I know you said you were obsessed and you did a lot of research, but like, I'm not even sure how you like lived your life with that. I did not very well. <laughs> I did. I can imagine. I was cut off from people that wanted to love me that I was supposed to love. I worked a part-time job and spent the rest of my time researching. Anytime I felt any sort of pain or something, I was, because, you know, it increases your risk for ovarian cancer. Anytime you get a cramp, right? I mean, ovarian cancer is even more scary than breast cancer. Once you learn about it, you're like, oh, well, that's, that's even worse. And, um, my God, I was, I was impossible to be around for many, many years. I couldn't go to a party without telling people about it. I couldn't, it was just like overflowing. I told strangers, it was just too much. I would tell therapists and they would just kind of blank out. Like they didn't know what to tell me. You know, it was just, I would go on. Oh yeah. I would go on. um, There was a breast cancer, a previvor before there was that word, but you know, BRCA1 positive like uh, chat room. And I remember mm. there was a social worker on there and she was, I got the test and then I had my mastectomy and now I'm all, I was too fast and I don't know how to deal with this. And she was, I was like, well, okay, a social worker who's trained in mental health doesn't know how to deal with this. Like, where do, where, how am I, like, where's my tools? I have no tools for this. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I smoked a lot of weed. Like I smoked so much weed that you... Mm that I became addicted. That's how I dealt with it. In all honesty. Yeah. Yeah. Did it help? No. You know how a lot of people, they're like smoke weed and they watch TV or they eat a lot of junk. I would smoke weed and think about how it's going to prevent cancer. (sighs) 
<laughs> like it would just, it just would hit the same. It would just go down the rabbit hole. Wow. Like it we was not you. fun. It made me nuts, yeah. even more nuts. Yeah. Yeah. That's not what that's supposed to do. No, but it I've is what it heard. does to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, yeah. you guys, I try to be cool and I'm really not. Um, <laughs> at all but i'm, I'm going to try to be cooler in future i am i am i'm going to believe break some it rules believe it i believe it there you go i'm getting ready i got a plan for it um <laughs> got a plan i got to put it in my planner mm-hmm. yeah I gotta find whatever sticker that is pencil for, it in mm-hmm. yeah going wild <laughs> um i think you already touched on this but you talked a little bit about there is like a social, I feel that there's like a social hierarchy in the breast cancer community. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. we do that in every community. It's not specific to breast cancer, but there is. There's sure. like women who had to have a mastectomy but didn't have to have chemo are like here. Women who had to have a mastectomy and chemo are here. If you had to have a mastectomy and chemo and radiation, you were here. And then if you had complications, you're here. And a lot of this is largely made up in my own head. Mm-hmm. And whatever competitive nature that I have. But I feel like, (laughs) I feel like in the norms, like a pre-viver is like, like the pre. They they put the word pre in front of it. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, and it sets you like apart. Oh, yeah. Like you're not in the, in the pack, like you're in the kiddie pool or something. Well, yeah, because you you survived nothing. You didn't survive (laughs) cancer yet. You didn't have it. You didn't survive you didn't, it. You didn't beat it. You didn't face it. Yeah. You, avoided you just avoided it. a fight. Right. You avoided it. <laughs> Good. You avoided that, that. You avoided that potential moment for a great spiritual transformation. Oh, you know, no. that's really Mm-mm. what you avoided. Oh, yeah. no. To find your meaning in life, which is to sell products to prevent breast right. cancer. Right. Um, oh, but I feel like that's so, again downplays the years and years and years of like dread of death Mm -hmm. oh (laughs) um you talked about having to advocate for yourself for genetic testing yeah that's still happening i think Mm -hmm. um and then kind of comparing that to i am having a hard time convincing my oncologist that taking out my ovaries is a good choice for me mm-hmm. he doesn't say that he's against it uh it does make him nervous but he says most surgeons that he works with will not remove ovaries on a 38 year old woman wow where uh, that's yeah. insane to me i, I got so mine is. were removed when i was 29 and the gynecological oncologist was like Having a parade for me down the hallway. He was so oh, really? overjoyed. Oh, yes. They were what? excited. They Tell were me excited. about that. Yeah. I was oh, two. No. It was one doctor that the one who did my surgery and he was fine and even keeled, but he had, you know, it was, I don't know, it was his residency or whatever. And this guy was so excited that I wanted to get everything removed 
and he was just talking. So then he started talking about birth control and how every woman should be on birth control. And if only they knew how it just made them like constant and emotion, you know, like their emotions would be even keel. And Ooh. and I, I found him the gross so, part was coming and yeah. there it is. And I, I found yeah. him so offensive, like on so many levels. But they both agreed that I, because I thought they would just want to remove my ovaries, right? Because of, mm-hmm. but I, what I wanted was a hysterectomy because I, I wanted as least risk as possible. Yeah. And they both agreed without me saying anything. They said, you should get a hysterectomy. And because I, they were so reprehensible, but they gave me what I wanted because they were so gross. And so I couldn't really, I didn't know what to say. I was just like, well, this, your grossness is working in my favor right now. But I, th- I had to find a female oncologist who was about to retire to find anybody who would give me the hormones I needed after the fact so that I wouldn't be crazy because a 29-year-old yeah. should not be in menopause. You know, and my doctor, uh, the men uh, were yeah. like, you don't have a uterus. You don't need progesterone. Actually, you kind of do need progesterone because of like the chemical response of your body needs it to like interact with the estrogen. But no, absolutely. And so they, you know science. Well, You're no, over there. I learned I this afterwards. <laughs> I learned this okay. afterwards. This okay. was like from a naturopath. Was like, and I went to a naturopath, absolutely. and I, I told her what I was going to do, and she cried when she found out I was going to get a hysterectomy. She just cried. She did. Yeah. Oh my god. Because yeah. she knew, like. You know, she said, look, you, yes, you're going to reduce your risk for cancer, but you're going to re- increase your risk for heart attacks. My father had a heart attack at 41. You know, your skin will age, your hair will fall out, like all of these other things that happen. Yeah, right? you're really like, selling it. It is, yeah. it, but it is so complicated. It is so complicated. Yeah. Like even if they give you estrogen and progesterone and a little bit of testosterone to quote unquote create what you lost, they can't mm-hmm. create the like hundreds of chemicals that are like, happening in your body to create this symphony that is you and it is only like mostly egotistical males who think that that's even like they have no idea of what they're cutting out (laughs) it's infuriating but they did it and i'm glad they did it because i was so scared and i didn't want to die of ovarian cancer and every six months i had to get a vaginal ultrasound and like the ultras- the other ultrasound that the pregnant women get, you know, I had to drink all this water and, yeah. and try not to pee my mm-hmm. pants and stuff. Yeah. And then I would go to the, the, um, the counselor, the genetic counselor, and they would say, yeah, it's great. You're getting this test every six months, but let me tell you about the person, the woman who got it, you know, four months ago, and now she has stage four, three ovarian cancer. No. Like they're not, they're not fail-safe tests, right? Like things can be missed. Yeah. Ovarian cancer can ha- it's like the silent killer for a reason, even if you're getting a test every six months. And yeah. it, like that leveling of anxiety, I, I couldn't deal with it. Like I couldn't rest. I couldn't rest. See, that's why I think the more that I think about it, if we're going to like have some kind of hierarchical system, which I'm against, but I understand that mm-hmm. I do it innately. And mm-hmm. I have to kind of dismantle it myself. But like someone who has to live day in and day out with that level of fear for their life, like you get to go straight to the top mm-hmm. because like, sure, having had cancer, it predisposes you for cancer to a certain mm-hmm. extent. And so, yes, I make life choices based on if I get this job, will the benefits be good enough that I don't have to work the next time I get cancer? <sighs> I always think the mm-hmm. next time I get cancer, yep. you know. It, what do I need to have in place? Mm-hmm. But like, y- 
you're going through that in a very real way. Mm-hmm. That's like, I, I actually don't know the specific statistics between recurrence of primary breast cancer versus statistics on um, BRCA mutation, you know, first onset. I don't know those. Mm-hmm. But I think with BRCA 1 and 2, it, it is pretty high. Well, for 1, it's about your risk of getting breast cancer, at least the last time I looked, was about 78%. Oh, dang. Right. I have as much piece as I can because I know I've cut out as much of my body as I possibly could. <laughs> like, there's no more I can cut out. And that's the only way I found peace. I wanted to be the person who could find peace just being healthy and getting the test. Like, I wanted to... To just yeah. see if I could, I wanted to see if really trying to live a healthy life was enough to prevent cancer. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do that. I was, I had too much anxiety. And then one day I just asked myself the question, I'm like, okay, you're 40 years old and you got cancer. What are you going to think? And I'm going to think I'm going to be mad at myself for not getting a mastectomy. I'm going to be mad at myself for not getting a hysterectomy. And I don't yeah. want that regret. So that was kind of what my tipping point was in my thinking. But it was, it took me a long time to get there because I tried, I tried to find peace with it. Yeah. It is, it was a lot in your 20s. You no know? kidding. Yeah. I think that that's kind of a part of your life where you're working on figuring out who you are and what you want right. to do and who you want to become. Right. And I and, was, a yeah, I was a little confused at the time, you know, I was a confused lesbian and everybody was like, well, you're a lesbian because your mom died. And I said, well, my father died too, but that doesn't seem to make what? me straight. Like it was the time. It was the time. Oh, like that, it's is not that the, unusual. Is that the formula? Like yeah. if mom dies lesbian. Right. If dad dies straight. Yeah. If they both die. You're really. Joker's you're, wild? Like. You're fucked. Is really. You're fucked. You're fucked. Because <laughs> everything's going to be questioned and suspect. I just. I love how some people can be so. Can just reduce the complexity of the world down to these like very trite phrases you know what i mean that makes zero sense but well it's it's gotta be such a simple world it's so pop psychology though i mean i think it's you know any i'm such a logical thinker i'm like that's just ridiculous that's the silliest thing i've ever heard yeah (laughs) yeah it's a it's problematic that's essentially i think one of the problems too with cancer culture in general is when you are young and you get cancer when you're a previvor or when you're a trans man, like where are the people who have had your experience? There's very few of them. I mm-hmm. found Lauren and like, this was so like, I don't know. I felt like this was so significant that I would find someone else who had the same cancer I had at the same age mm-hmm. that I was like, Oh my God, right. I, I didn't expect this. I thought the first time, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever like accessed any of the programs that are out there for like mm-hmm. all the Ivers, but mm-hmm. like the first time they matched me up with a, a mentor or whatever they call mm-hmm. it. I don't remember mm-hmm. what they call it. Some kind of buddy system. Yeah. But she was a very lovely, lovely woman in her sixties. And I was like, and we spent the whole time talking about her. <laughs> Because she found out I was a nurse. And I think people just kind of easily Aww. fall 
into that mm-hmm. dynamic and I fall into that dynamic. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was newly diagnosed, I didn't want to be a patient. I don't identify as a patient. I identify as a, as a caregiver. I identify as a, like a, wor- a medical worker. And so I was more than happy to, mm-hmm. to like reverse those roles, more mm-hmm. than happy. Mm-hmm. So, but like, yeah. who, like who, who do you find now? Who right. who do you access now? I mean, I don't right at the at the present moment. I don't. I have. There was actually actually somebody I dated a handful of years ago. They had, uh, I think, they had BRCA two, and mm. it was it was so mm. strange to have somebody who knew that space, but yeah. their mom hadn't died. Like their mom was alive. Mm. And I think that's such a different situation because mm. for me, if anybody had lived, it would have given me the sense that maybe I will get breast cancer, but it doesn't have to be the end. Yes. And, and no, and I didn't have that story. I had the story of my mom died younger than her mother. It's coming for me and mm-hmm. I got to be prepared. I had people ask me, even my neighbor. Asked me if I was going to die. What? I'm sorry, what? Just flat out? She, well, Did she she know you like that? (laughs) She was, um, she was, she'd been drinking. (sighs) (laughs) Yeah. And I got home. I I don't remember where I was, but I came home and, um, and I said, well, hi, you know, waved at my neighbors and. Howdy, neighbor. Yeah. and, And she was outside and. And she goes, hey, hey, uh, of course, this was, you know, certainly after my diagnosis and I was um, going through treatment. And she goes, hey, can, can you come over here for a second? I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> and she was like, um, you're not going to die, are you? I was like, she was crying. Ooh. Yeah. Like she started to like melt down. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I definitely knew that I was not going to die. But not only that, like I was determined not to die. So Mm. um, I was like, no, no, I'm not going to die. Not yet, at least. Are you trying to kill me? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like, is there something you want? You want to tell me? I want to get in there first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I also, I I also had to like, um, definitely, you know, I have children. And right. my children watched me have cancer. Yep. So mm. I had to tell my oldest son, who was old enough to recognize what was going on, mm-hmm. mommy is not going to die. Um, no matter how sick I was looking or behaving or, well, mostly looking really, mm-hmm. really terrible. <laughs> but I was like, no, I am not going to die. And I had and, to say it with such confidence that he was okay, mom. I don't know enough about your story. So is that because the doctor said you'll live or because you were like, I'm not going to die? No, I, I mean, I knew that I was going to get over cancer. I'm, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. not only that, but the, yes, the medicines, the doctors, the surgeries, mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. that they have for treatment. I felt my treatment was going to be successful. I would ask my mom if she was going to die. Did you? What did she say? She said, well, I had my mom, my father's mother 
had had, I thought as a kid it was breast cancer, but she actually had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma for 36 okay. years. Whoa. Right. The doctors kept telling her she was going to die every six yeah. months and she yes. just kept living. <laughs> so she was, she, I just knew, you know, like she was a survivor. And so my yeah. mom, my mom answered, she said, I'm going to fight like Nana. I'm going to fight like Nana. That's what she would answer. And as an adult, I was like, ooh, that's so, that was so honest. Like, she didn't say she was going to die, but she She did not say say she was going to live. And I don't know that she, from what I know is that the doctors told my dad that she had four years to live, but they did not tell her because this was like the early 80s. Oh. And she didn't know that she didn't really know she was going to die until it had moved to her liver. And that was like a few years later. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. That's not cool. No. I mean, flagrantly unethical, I guess, to put a finer point on it. But yeah, they better tell me. They're going to have to tell me quite a few times for it to land. But like, (laughs) they better tell me. I'm telling you, like, I don't know why, but in my head, when I think about getting cancer again, I I think about getting sick, really, really sick and not being able to work. And then like, that's kind of where it ends for me. Mm-hmm. I don't go so far as to think I will die. And even like when I was getting treatment, like an active treatment, they kept telling me like there was this like phrase they would use. Uh, I don't remember. It said something like, um, we're going for, for, we're for cure. Something mm-hmm. for cure. Like, mm-hmm. and they kept saying it and I couldn't figure out, like, I was like, yeah, I know. Why are you saying this to me? And I think what they were trying to say is, like, you're not going to die. Mm-hmm. Like, statistically speaking, it is unlikely that this mm-hmm. will kill you this time. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that they were saying that until I started hearing other people talk about fear of death. And I think I've also shunted that to a place where I can actively not access it and look at it (laughs) just probably something I should discuss with my therapist (laughs) and like why hasn't that come up I have a lot of questions next Tuesday um And now it's time for a quick BSA, breast service announcement. And today we are talking about something called the illusory truth effect, which is the concept that false statements repeated often will be taken as truth, even if you know that they are false. This is a wild oversimplification of this concept, but very basically, there are ways in which we are just naturally predisposed to accept new information as truth, from coupling false statements with true ones, to using certain fonts, and easy to understand language, to the level of confidence with which that information is conveyed. Simply put, it is easier to believe a falsehood delivered in a few confident words than to accept a truth that is complex, nuanced, and delivered with an appropriate level of confidence, especially if the information does not sound familiar. All this to say, if you are hesitant about getting the COVID vaccine, there is no shame in that. The sheer volume of repeated misinformation combined with the fact that it's unlikely you've spent the last 10 years of your life reading research articles for fun is a pretty good predictor of hesitancy around something like this. And my urging you to get vaccinated right now, which I definitely am doing, is a tactic. I am using this tactic. It's based on the assumption that you find me a reliable source of information and the fact that I sound really confident in most things that I say. I just do. It's just a thing that I do. But 
don't be taken in by my overconfidence and, albeit well-informed and supported by the evidence, opinion. But also know that the benefits of getting the vaccine far outweigh the risks and that my nefarious plot to get you vaccinated as soon as possible stems from my actual desire to keep you healthy and out of the hospital and out of medical debt and worst case scenario, keep you alive. Please don't just take my word for it. Google CDC COVID vaccine FAQs and read up on the situation. Make a decision about the vaccine and make a decision as to whether or not you are going to get vaccinated and do it now. If you're going to get vaccinated, now is the time. This helps prevent the formation of new variants. It also helps the U.S. release additional doses to countries that really need them. Personally, I think this vaccine is amazing. I'm privileged to have gotten it as soon as I did. I'm proud to have had the opportunity to give it to others. And I am so impressed by the millions of people who have already gotten vaccinated to protect themselves, the people they love, and the millions of people they don't even know who will benefit from their decision. In 20 years, when we look back at this period in history, I am going to feel good about my part in it. Get vaccinated. Get vaccinated today. Please get vaccinated. And now back to the show. Wrapping up a little bit, I want to know, how the hell do you write a memoir? Like, how do you even do that? Uh, I think, and I've been working on it a very long time. And I think in the beginning, it wasn't a choice. I just wrote. Like, that was how I processed it. All that was happening, and I just couldn't stop. And it felt like the, it, it felt as if it was the only thing to do with this story. I don't, what do we do with our stories? You yeah. know, what, it, what good well, is my story? Well, you start story? a podcast, sure, and you right. aggregate exactly. tens of tens of listeners. Exactly. <laughs> but if we just, if we just walk down the street and nobody knows our story, like what, it, I could, it was, yeah. it was, what am I going to do with it? So I wrote. And now it's sort of painstaking going back and, you know, working on sections that I have to fix up. But yeah, it's pretty, I, I mean, at first it was how I survived and then it was, it became something else. Like, uh, the problem is that I've been working on it for so long that I see it differently every year, you know, like I'm growing. So my viewpoint of that age of my 20s has, is, from I'm now I'm 43, right? So it, when I wrote this, the, some chapters in my 20s, they had that vantage point. I didn't know I was going to even transition. Like I was just a woman yeah. trying to figure out how to be in my body, you know. And that's kind of what my I have two books, but that's what my first book is about that I'm finishing up. You have and, two. Um, you're writing two books. Yeah, because there's yeah, because it's two different like stories. Kind of the two stages. Yeah, two different stories. Jocelyn, you and I have talked about the the pre-cancer person and then the post-cancer person yes um and whether that be going through cancer treatment or like you know receiving a mastectomy hysterectomy like there is definitely a it you go through like you said a journey of Mm -hmm. of of change and trying to figure out who this new person is 
And you're right. It's two totally different stories. Mm-hmm. Completely different people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that a lot of people who go through traumatic events um, feel that way too. Yeah. The before the event person and the after oh, person. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in... Because you didn't really have a choice for mm-hmm. your first, like, major body changes, like, to prevent yourself from getting cancer. You certainly didn't feel as though you had a choice if there was mm-hmm. any choice in it. Right. Like, you had to have, you know, you're basically your pelvic and abdominal cavity, cavity gutted and right. um, yeah. mastectomy. Yeah. And then, the, separately, you went through another significant change when you transitioned. Mm-hmm. And my feeling with the body I have now, which is different from the body I had before, uh, and the lack of hormones that I have now that I used to have, Mm -hmm. I feel very different. I look very different. Like, this is not my belly button. Like, they had Mm -hmm. to, because my stomach is now in this breast, and then they had to make me a belly Mm -hmm. button. So, like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. And so, I'm, but I'm acclimating to it. But I wonder... Now I'm just comparing actually breast cancer surgery to transitioning, which I think is problematic. No, I don't think it's that dissimilar. No? No. Because if you're a trans man and you want to have a mastectomy, you have a mastectomy. Maybe you'd have reconstruction so that it looks Mm -hmm. like a masculine chest. Mm -hmm. But at Mm -hmm. the time, I remember because I I was on the little chat rooms because I was waiting to get my mastectomy and I was trying to find somebody in the world to sort of relate to and mm, I couldn't yeah. find one and I remember posting so does anybody here you know get a ma- is anybody getting a mastectomy and then they want like a masculine chest to be reconstructed afterwards and they removed my question <gasps> what? they removed it yeah that's who, weird who why who did this to you it was I think it was what is it force What's wrong I'm going to talk question? to their manager. <laughs> I think it was not, know. you know, You're it was outside me. their, uh, this was, mm. it was 2004. 2004. So it was a while ago. Our anyway, year started with a two. Like, but it was, yeah. I, I can forgive this them. This century. Do you think they but, were, they were just like, uh, we don't know what to do with this. Hurry, make it go yeah. away. I'm uncomfortable. I think that's what they Ugh, did. I don't like that. Yeah, I think I that's yeah, what they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time I just thought, eh, okay, then I'm just weird and. One other way, like, of course, like, but of course. as a kid, right, as a kid, I, I wanted yeah. to be a boy, but then when my mom was dying and I was coming of age and dealing with the cancer stuff, I s- questioned that. Mm. I questioned that because of, because of what we talked about before. And so I wasn't quite sure when I got my mastectomy, I thought, am I going to look down at my chest and realize that for the last 10 years of my life or 15 or whatever it been, I was denying my breasts. I never allowed myself to enjoy them. And now they're gone and I miss okay. them. Mm-hmm. Am I going to feel that? Or am I going to feel, ooh, I, al- I always wanted to have a masculine chest and now I got one and I'm happy. I did not know what that mm-hmm. moment would be. And it wasn't until I had the surgery and I looked down and I was like, oh, no, I really did want a masculine chest. I thought about getting a mastectomy when I was 21. 
Like that was my plan. They said, what are you going to do if you have this information? I said, I'm getting my breast removed. But at the time I would have had reconstruction. Like I was so not comfortable with how I felt about myself to, I couldn't trust it that I would have just, you know, had them make breasts for my stomach and do the thing. But I was glad in the end, I was glad I waited because I didn't, I didn't want the reconstruction, even if, you know, people thought it was barbaric. (laughs) Really? Oh yeah. Well, we've talked about on the show about aesthetic flat closure. Yes. um, And it's, doctors are so opposed to it. And I know I'm generalizing there, but the statistics are pretty compelling that the, again, the, the archetype of the, the reconstructed woman Mm. after breast cancer is breasts. Like, right. Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with a system that is seeped in misogyny as the medical system is just as a system, it's just a fact. Mm -hmm. I see it every day. Um, it's really hard to overcome the, like, mm-hmm. I just don't think they're there collectively. The system's mm-hmm. not there. We're not set up, which is really, it robs people of like being able to have these more articulate thoughts and conversations with a medical person. And it mm-hmm. also, I feel like this vitriol against like the trans community, LGBTQ community mm-hmm. robs young people, especially of their right to, to be unsure, yeah. you know, it's like, you have to be so sure and mm-hmm. advocate so strongly for yourself. And you don't, in my perception anyway, is like, you don't get to have that time where you're just like, you know, I don't know, but I'm curious and can we talk about this? And mm-hmm. what are the resources? Can I talk to other people about this? You know, I'm, I'm figuring this out. Yeah. And it just robs people of that. And that's really a shitty thing to do. Yeah. I was very focused on reconstruction. Having gone through just that very specific category of like body change and hormone change, I just know that like anyone else for any reason at all who is looking at making changes to their body, I want them to have those resources. Yeah. Like why can't, we want that for everybody that mm-hmm. this is like, I don't understand. I don't understand who is being harmed. I don't understand. I just, I do understand it. Cause I was raised in that mindset very much. So, mm-hmm. you know, that very rigid, like things are very specifically categorized this way yeah. and anything mm-hmm. out outside of this is bad, obviously, because oh. it's not this. Yeah. So I do get it. And I think I, I get really upset because of any of the time that I spent there and then now feeling the way that I do, it just, I can't, I don't understand. I don't know. It's awful. Like, think about if, if there were n- no resources out there for a deep flap reconstruction, how, or, and if, if there was a large segment of the population who didn't believe that it was okay to get a deep flap reconstruction. Mm-hmm. You know, who felt that it was like you were going to hell for getting mm-hmm. it. You know what I mean? I think about this and I know it's not like the same, but it's horrifying. It is. Mm-hmm. It's awful to th- like, why are we doing this? Why? There's. Could we save the planet instead? Right. Many other <laughs> could things. Could we all get vaccinated instead? 
would that be cool? Like, I don't know. There are like <laughs> things we could be doing. If it hadn't been one. for the mutation in my 20s, maybe I would have changed. But I remember mm-hmm. thinking, I kind of like, I wish I was a boy, but I was born a girl. So deal with it. Right. Like that was kind of my attitude. Like, just deal with it. Like it is what it is. Like you are. And I'm not even, I wasn't even raised a hardcore Christian or anything, but I was like, I am as God made me, Mm. you know? And I think that having that mutation and, and having a good excuse to have those surgeries and having it paid for because of the mutation without ease, without me having to tell anybody I had any negative, confused feeling about my gender identity You know, it was a very backwards path, a strange path to get to where I am now. But in some ways, I'm not sure if I would have taken it this route because I wouldn't have known how right it felt. Like, I don't think I would have given myself the gift of a a mastectomy for my gender identity (gasps) had I not had. That is so valid. Yeah. So valid. Yeah. I referenced this before, but there's a video on your website of you. Um, well, you know, it's your website. You know mm-hmm. what video I'm talking about. It's amazing. Oh. I was like, why didn't he tell me he's hilarious? <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed like you were surprised in the moment that people were getting the humor yeah. to that extent. Yeah, were you? I was. Or I didn't That's know if true. that was no. part of your like, I was very surprised. I was very surprised. I was like, oh, you got you get it it's funny i thought it, it was yeah. funny but you get Very that it's funny. funny that works you know it's people who can turn trauma into humor that's mm-hmm. a like that's a special kind of person to mm-hmm. me because that's like i need that to be true for other people otherwise mm-hmm. you know and when you talked about saving your period blood mm-hmm. in a jar in your fridge for like seven years yeah. And like, I don't know why, but in that moment I was like, wow. I was like, I get you now. Cause like, <laughs> I have, I have thought about not, I had never gotten that far down that track, mm-hmm. but I have recently begun to kind of fixate on this idea that I will never have a period again. Mm-hmm. And like, I never loved my periods, but they were never weird. I never thought I would miss it. I never thought I would miss it. And you know what it is? It's Uh, such a shared experience mm -hmm. for so many people. It's weird. Yeah, that I'm not a part of anymore. And, I mean, I think we talked about this when we were talking on the phone before, but to Mm -hmm. me, for me, when I had my period, which didn't bother me, um, but, I, you know, you get grumpy, you get mad, but it was like all the emotion I hadn't felt for the month congealed over three days <laughs> and I got to express it. Like yes! my body got gross. My yes! face got gross. I oh. bled, you know, I'm swollen, but the emotion was expressed. And yes. then I could start the, re- the new month anew until I needed to like be like kind of wrung out again. Yeah. And I yes. felt like that when you have, you know, hormones or when you have birth control, when you have these sort of stable things, you're not going with the, the, you're not experiencing that normal as it should be ringing out, you know, yeah. like I don't, I didn't feeling stable, didn't feel good in the way that that male doctor expected it to. I thought it well, was a loss. <laughs> it was a loss. I think, 
yeah, he was very much, it was his perception mm-hmm. of his own stability, mm-hmm. I'm sure, and mm-hmm. some projection on what I imagine is a menstruating woman in his life. Mm-hmm. Who has really given him some trouble apparently because and he really wants to regulate it. her ass. He yeah. clearly Probably. deserves he it. He clearly does. He thinks Probably. it's the period, but it's just him. <laughs> yep. Like, dude, you don't even know. Don't oh even my know. God. Yeah. I think, especially during like a pandemic when time feels even less of a thing, right. having some kind of marker, like you said, mm-hmm. of the passage mm-hmm. of time, of a cycle, I miss that. Because all I get now is my hot flashes will get worse mm-hmm. the closer I get to needing my monthly shot again. Mm-hmm. And then I'll get it and I'll feel kind of cuckoo for a few days. And by mm-hmm. that, I guess I could be more specific. Like, I just feel almost like the start of a period, but without any of the, like, energy behind it. Because mm-hmm. I don't know about you all, but, like, days before I would get my period... I would get massive energy for some reason, mm. but it was always like more angry <laughs> than, mm-hmm. ah. you know what I mean? I would like <clears throat> have the, I don't know, like the energy and like things would, be, I would have enough of things. I would be like, that's it. Yep. I can't take this anymore and I'm fixing it. Like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. fix it energy. I, mm-hmm. I miss that. It's a righteous anger. It's a righteous anger. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I miss it. I miss those hormones a lot. Me yeah. too. <laughs> I, I miss them a lot. My bones miss them. My brain misses them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Not great. Right after my hysterectomy, 29, they give me the pill. And after mm. a few, I must have been a week or two, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling crazy but i feel like i want to slice my body open and have the essence of me leave my body because it feels Whoa. so wrong like it, it feels insanely wrong Whoa. and i i it is un, it is it's a feeling i've never had before and my girlfriend at the time said i think your hormones are off you need to contact the doctor <laughs> so i do he said he said let's give you a patch instead of a pill i go and get the patch i put yeah. it on Within like an hour, it's gone. No. Like I just felt okay. Kidding me? I was, it was, yeah. 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 It was, I, I believe that. Could not have ever understood how sensitive we are to hormonal changes and how much Mm -hmm. that affects our ability to move through the world as like an, an average citizen. Yes. Yes. You know, and just, I, I, it was so shocking. And it was also more shocking that more women don't kill people when they have yes. menopause, especially a very traumatic menopause, because mm-hmm. I was so mad at everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am so mad <laughs> all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. Um, thank you, Ira, yes, for being here. You. And for spending a good portion of your Friday night and thank your fiance as well for sparing you. Yes, um, thank you. Quite generous. Ira has a website. If you just Google Ira Feinstein cut off, that's how I got to your website. Mm, Also, it'll pull up a bunch of other stuff like other podcasts that you have Mm -hmm. been on, which are definitely worth a listen. Um, 
check out the writing, especially, and the YouTube video where you give, I mean, one of the finest performances I think anyone's given. Um, I think you're available for speaking engagements, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That would be a good choice. That would be a very good choice. Cut Off is the name of the memoir that is coming out someday. 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 Yep. You know what? You can't rush it. You can't, you can't rush. Tr- I've, I've tried. Brilliance. <laughs> you can't. I don't think any of us here fit like the mold of the, you know, the Iver. And I think that's cool. And I think the more people who break out of that, the better. Because... Mm-hmm. This is more fun to me, um, you know? So it's cool. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Be more like us. We're very popular. We have hundred and hundred of followers uh, on Instagram. And uh, speaking of Instagram, you should follow us. It's at Breast Cancer is Boring. I wrote that in my notes. I like literally wrote at Breast Cancer is Boring as though I was going to forget like what our Instagram handle was. Yeah. Very thorough. Um, yeah. All right, that's it. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yes, thank you.